uh, verse 22 last time. So Acts 22 is where we will uh, pick up and begin thinking through some of these things here. Uh, seems like for weeks and weeks and weeks where we have been is that Paul is on trial somewhere before someone. Uh, his audiences have changed somewhat, but the situation stays pretty much the same where he's before one group or another being charged with uh, causing problems, being charged with uh, teaching things that are uh, causing riots and all, all manner of things like that. And so he's defending himself, but most of all, he is uh, defending and sharing and making clear the significance of the gospel. He is making clear the significance of the fact that Jesus died that Jesus rose, and that Jesus reigns. And he's going to continue to press that point no matter where he is. And, uh, and that's the, the key to who he is, what he's doing, and should be the key to who we are and what we do also. Right? Uh, anything that you want to say that's been on your mind since last week or anything like that before we read a few lines together and think about it? Anything that's pressing, necessary for us to think about before we read? Okay, well then maybe something will come to mind as we read a little bit. So, Acts 26, uh, let's actually start at verse 19. Like I said, I know verse 22 is uh, where we stopped, but let's start at verse 19, just get the whole uh, context. So he says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. What he's just done is told his story of what happened on the road to Damascus when he's charging in to go terrorize Christians and pull them from their homes. It's when the Lord stops him and says, you've been kicking against the goads. It's time to stop that. It's time to stop resisting and kicking and it's time to submit and live for me. Okay, so therefore, King Agrippa, I, didn't, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And so to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, to the most oppressed, to the weakest, to the most uh, overlooked, to the most high and mighty, I teach the exact same message. To the small and to the great, I say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Okay, so that's where we had, had stopped last time. So he says, no matter where my audience, no matter where, no matter where I am, no matter who my audience is, I teach the same thing. Doesn't matter if I'm standing for one or 1,000, if they're rich or poor, no matter where they're from, I teach the same thing. And he says, and what I've been doing, remember one of the things he's been charged with is being someone who has uh, thrown off and not only just ignored, but has trampled and rebelled against Moses and the law that Moses gave, right? He's done all these terrible things. He's, he's saying Moses is nothing. He's defiled the temple. He's horrible. And we're good Jews. And so what's the main point he says here? If you're a good Jew, <laughs> if you're really one, who believes the word of God, you'll be standing right where I am. 
Because if you really believe the prophets, as you say you do, if you really believe Moses, as you say you do, they were talking about Jesus. They were telling us about what the Christ would look like, and that's Jesus. And so all I'm doing, he says, and all I've ever done here, is I say nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Okay, so verse 23 is what those prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Here's what they said. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, they said that the Christ, here's what the Christ would do. The Christ would suffer. So the prophets said that Christ would suffer. Let me stop right there and ask you this question. Can you think of a passage in the prophets where the prophets said the Christ would suffer? Isaiah 53 ought to be one that comes right to mind, right? Let's just look at that for a minute. Go to Isaiah 53. I mean, obviously, this is not the lone passage, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a better passage. Um, verse 3 of Isaiah 53 says that this, this one who would come would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised, esteemed not. Uh, verse 4 would say he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5 would say, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. On him, on this one, on this Messiah, on him would be the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we're healed. So if we don't read another line, we already see right there in Isaiah 53, the prophets have said, the Christ will suffer. Okay? So then it's next he says, this is back in Acts 26. He would suffer. And by being the first to rise from the dead. Okay, so here's something else to think of. Whenever he says that the Christ would suffer, there's suffering, you know, oh, a little pain, a little agony, but then you get over it. But then there's suffering that's ultimate. There's suffering that's final. What's final or ultimate suffering? Death. So when it says here that the Christ would suffer, I think you need to see here this concept. He not only would be in agony for a time, it's the type of agony that would lead to death. Uh, and that's exactly what we see painted in Isaiah 53. Pierced. I mean, there's the image that is, that's gruesome. And then we see it carried out in the, in the Gospels that talk about Jesus being nailed to the cross. Uh, so this suffering here is not just going through a time period of pain. This is about agony to death. Okay, so he would suffer. And then being the first to rise from the dead. Okay, so where's a, a time that uh, one of the prophets or somewhere in the Old Testament, uh, if we consider, because you know, the book of Acts calls David, a prophet, a couple of different times that, that's made crystal clear. Um, where's the time you can think of in the Old Testament that it's spoken of that the Christ would rise from the dead? You can find it there in Isaiah, but where's another place? Psalm 16.10, the very one, yeah. Um, you will not allow my soul to, uh, you won't let my flesh see corruption or my soul stay in Sheol. 
you would, you would see me there and you would bring me back. That's quoted over and over again. Acts 2, Acts 13. I mean, that, that's mentioned again and again. You won't let my flesh see corruption. You won't leave my soul to languish and stay there in Sheol, in Hades. In other words, I'll die, but you won't leave me there. You'll bring me out of that tomb. Okay, so it says that the Christ will suffer to the point of death, and then he'll be raised, the first raised from the dead. Okay, so what's the significance of that? Remember, we've talked about this quite a bit. There's a very special agricultural term that's used for the Christ and his resurrection. It's what? First fruits. Marcus, tell us, what are first fruits? If, I, if someone lays down the first fruits, what's the indication there? More to follow. That's exactly right. That's the, that's the indication, of, and that's the significance of what first fruits are all about. Here's a little bit uh, from my garden. Here's a little bit from you know, my field. And there's going to be so much more to come. Uh, and that's the idea. And so that's why here, even though clearly, clearly for anyone who's ever read the Bible, Jesus is not the first one ever raised from the dead, right? He's not. But he's the first one raised from the dead with this type of significance. He's the first one raised from the dead that his resurrection equaled his glorification, his, his reign as king, and what was to come next. And so for him... In his resurrection, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, or as we see here, when the Christ was raised, it would mean something that the world's never seen before. Okay, so the Christ would suffer, and by being the first to rise from the dead, so here's the first thing, he would suffer and die. Second thing, he would rise from the dead. And this resurrection from the dead would lead to all others being taught something. So the third thing is this. He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So what does that mean? He would proclaim light both to Jew and Gentile alike. Okay, the gospel will be preached to everyone. That's the, that's the concept of Jew and Gentile because in their way of thinking, if I say Jew and Gentile, I've just said everyone because there's only those two kinds of people in the whole world. There's Jews and non-Jews. There's Jews and Gentiles. That covers everybody in the whole world. Okay, so all would hear the message. What else? Anybody? If you go back to passages like Isaiah 42, verse 6, Isaiah 49, verse 6, in those passages, God speaks of his servant, his suffering servant would be a light to the nations. He'd be one that was seen and that would lead to where you need to be. Uh, that's kind of the, um, you know, there's some of those old songs, uh, put a candle in the window. Why would you put a candle in the window to say, here's the house to come home to? Uh, what's the old Motel 6? We'll leave a light on for you. You probably don't remember that. It's been so long. But you know what? That, what's it mean when he says, we'll leave the light on for you? It's late, and everybody else has gone to bed, but we're waiting on you. And when you see the light on, you know where to go. That's, a, that's the same image. People have not gotten that creative, really. We're still using the same imagery and the same ideas that the Lord used. Here's the light. What Jesus say, even in Matthew chapter 5? You got a bushel, I mean, see, you got a, a lamp and you got a bushel. Do you put the, the basket or the bushel on top of the lamp? The lamp is to shine so that others can see. Okay, we're to do that to point people to the Father. 
He says there was one coming who would be the light that all the gospel of John and John chapter 1 and John chapter 3, John over and over and over again says Jesus came to dispel the darkness. He was the light that came and shined. But even right here in Acts 26, just go up to verse 18 in Acts 26. Remember when, when Paul was on that road to Damascus and he thought he knew what he was doing, right? These people are blaspheming my God, saying this, this heretic, Jesus, is the Christ. I'm going to make them stop. So at that moment, Paul is in darkness. But then what happens? Not only does he hear a, a voice, not only does he hear a voice, but there's a light that shines around him, right? So he goes from being in the darkness to being in the light. And then here's the mission that God says, verse 18. Verse 18, he says, what you're going to do, Paul, is you're going to go open people's eyes so that they can turn from darkness to what? To the light. From the power of Satan to the power of God. And then they, they can receive forgiveness of sins and they can have a place right here among the sanctified with me. Okay, so the image is, is clear. Jesus said, now you have gone from the darkness to being in the light and what you're going to do is you're going to go share the light with others. And that's the very thing that the Christ, that all the prophets, from Moses to the Psalms to Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the rest, he said, look, all I'm doing, Agrippa, and all I'm doing, you can just imagine him addressing these other Jews in this room. All I'm doing, he says, is I'm only saying what the prophets and Moses have been predicting would happen. And what you know, they, they predicted Isaiah 53, they predicted that Christ would suffer. In Psalm 16, they predicted that the Christ would rise from the dead. In Psalm 42, they predicted that the Christ would be the light to the world that all those would follow. And so he says, that's all I've come here to do is to share that message. And so he is clearly, powerfully teaching a message that is just this one continual, perfect, unbroken message from Genesis right here to this moment that would become Acts 26 for you and me. He says, this is what we've always been looking for. It's been Christ the whole time. Uh, you've seen him. You've known him. You've heard about what he's done. You recognize uh, the message we've shared. And it's undeniable. It's powerful. And so he has done such a wonderful job of explaining how amazing Jesus was. Because if I told you, just using Isaiah alone, not even going back to as far back as um, you know, Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 20, not even going back, just going to Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus. If I were to say there's one coming in 700 years and he will come from a, a certain family, the family of, of Jesse, and he will, he will suffer, and he will die, and then he'll be raised from the dead. And upon his resurrection, the whole world will recognize he's the king. That would be a pretty fantastic message, wouldn't it? Some people will see that, recognize that, and be blown away. Other people will hear that message and say, you are crazy. That's exactly what happened in this case, isn't it? Look at what happens here. 
Verse 24. As Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, agitated maybe, scared maybe, clearly seeing the dots being connected and hating it, maybe. He says with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You've studied too much. You've learned too much. You've read too many books. You've listened to too many rabbis. You've gone crazy. Now, That sounds sort of modern, doesn't it? Do we believe in an all-powerful God who spoke the world into existence? Do we believe in the Son of God who became flesh, died for us, and raised from the dead? There's plenty of those who would say, well, that just doesn't make any sense. But that's why Paul's response is one of my favorite in all of the Bible. Because here's what you need to know. Here's one of the important things about not just the year 2022, but anytime, anywhere where uh, the trustworthiness of Scripture is being discussed. If you're talking about Jesus, who lived and died and rose again and continues to reign, you are speaking words of truth and rationality. Not fantasy, not myth, not hope, not wish, truth and rationality. Listen to Paul's response. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. If somebody out, makes an outburst, you've given your heart and soul to something. Think back, you know, you're in school or you've prepared something for you know, a presentation at work and you've just worked yourself nearly to death and the day comes and you're giving your presentation and you're laying it all on the line. And then somebody in the back of the room, you know, the hot shot in the back of the room, you're an idiot. Or, you're crazy. How's that, how would that make you feel? Make you feel good? Oh, thank you. That's very constructive criticism. Thank you. You've given your heart to something. And someone calls you out of your mind, interrupts, stops, and calls you crazy. And look at the way Paul reacts. This is the way a Christian reacts. I'm not out of my mind. And he compliments him, most excellent Festus. How hard would that have been for most of us to respond that way rather than lashing back? I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But here's the truth of the matter. I'm speaking true and rational words. When I speak of Jesus, I'm speaking the truth. When I speak of the fact that, that Jesus reigns even now, like Paul would write in the book of Romans, that he lived and that he died and more than that continues to live. It's the only rational explanation. The only rational explanation for why there's something rather than nothing is because God spoke it into existence. The only rational explanation for why the disciples, the apostles, acted the way they did in the first century is because the tomb was empty. The only rational explanation for all of these things. He says, I'm speaking the truth 
I'm speaking the only thing that makes sense. Not only the only thing that makes sense out of the evidence at hand, but I'm speaking the only thing that makes sense out of your life. If you want to live a life that's just chaos and randomness and worthlessness and just hollow, you want to live a meaningless life, then go off and live without Jesus. But if you want to live a life that means something and that makes sense, you have to have the Christ. And so this response is one of my all-time favorites. You're crazy. No, sir. No good, sir. No, my kind, sir. I'm speaking words of truth and rationality. Because I'm speaking about the Christ who lives and reigns and is coming back. Those are the facts. And that's what we need to live our lives in accordance with. All right, let me pause for a second um, and ask for help, feedback, comments. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Paul made that point uh, to the church in Corinth that the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. Yeah, that, uh, that someone, not only that someone would, would die for others, not a sacrificial death not only doesn't make sense, but the fact that one could go and die and then live again uh, is outlandish to many. Uh, but as Paul said, this is the truth. And this is the way to think through these things rationally. Who else? Oh, yeah, Daniel. Um, you know, it's right after he mentions the, the resurrection mm -hmm. with Festus, you know, that's the down verse. That's crazy. Just like back in, uh, in chapter 17, when he's talking to the, the worldly Greeks on Mars Hill, mm -hmm. right after he mentions the resurrection, that's when, you know, he loses people. Yeah. And it keeps happening to him. A lot of times people today may sort of dismiss ancients as being. Oh, they're superstitious, they believe in anything. But no, they, they found the claim of the resurrection to be incredible. They found it to be something very hard to believe. And so that makes the disciples' dedication to that truth that much more impressive. Yeah, yeah. that's a great point that, that Daniel's making is that uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that we often fall prey to chronological snobbery. And by chronological snobbery, he meant the only smart people are today's people. Anybody that came before me was dumber than me. Um, and that's a ridiculous way to think. Uh, human beings, you, know, you go back to the early pages of Genesis, and they're you know, working with metal and making fantastic machinery, technology, you know, way back then in, in their ways. And so they've been brilliant people from the beginning. And they always knew when someone dies, they stay dead. <laughs> and so the disciples, that's why when Jesus said it again and again and again, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die on a cross, but three days later I'll be raised up. He said that over and over. But when he died on the cross, what'd they do? Well, it's over. <laughs> he died. Dead people stay dead. But then when they saw the... That's why Thomas, I'm not going to believe that you've seen him until I see him because dead people stay dead. They weren't superstitious and you know these outlandish. They weren't simple-minded. They were brilliant. Uh, and so that's a great point to make, Daniel, that whenever uh, they knew dead people stayed dead. And so when they saw the risen Jesus, when they talked to the risen Jesus, when they ate broiled fish with the risen Jesus, they knew 
and it changed everything about them, made cowards into courageous, world-beating conquerors. Yeah. yeah, because just seeing it, I mean, even to see it one time is amazing, but you still, how many other hundreds or thousands have you seen? You know when you die, you stay dead. This is the way it works. But, yeah, so it's a fantastic thing to overcome and, and to lock your mind into. But it's the truth, and it's the only rational explanation. So I appreciate that, Daniel. appreciate that, John. What else? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was going along, everything was good until he mentioned Jesus' words to depart from him and go to the Gentiles. And I mean, when he said the word Gentiles, that's when that, that's when that really got the crowd worked up and the yeah. Roman Catholic had delivery. So Festus and Agrippa, they knew what Paul had been saying, teaching. They had their church. Oh, yeah. Gentiles just like everybody else was a Christian or Jesus. No yeah. No difference. So. Sure. Yeah, no. So one of the things that Robbie's pointing out is that again, human nature, uh, certain groups find different things to be upset about. Some are upset, like Daniel pointed out from here with Festus or the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Acts 17. They were upset with the concept of resurrection. That stopped them. Others would be okay with hearing about resurrection. Fine, tell me that the Lord is risen. That's great. Just don't tell me it's for everyone. So some stop when he says resurrection. Some stops when he says gospel for all. Um, and we have to make sure that we can't say, ah, look, that's where they stop. Silly. That's where they stop. Silly. We can't be like, well... We don't have any hang-ups. We have to make sure we have to make sure that we are seeing the whole thing and being fair and being honest, not being hypocritical, uh, so that we don't have one where we stumble as well. What were you going to say? Amen. Amen. Marcus. Yeah. Yeah. And the same thing had happened with uh, his own family. Remember that? I mean, claims uh, they were saying similar things. They thought he was out of his mind um, because that's a that's such a serious statement to make. Son of God, the King that reigns. Uh, that would take a a mighty, powerful individual to convince. And that's what Christ was. What? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. That's right. That's right. Okay, who else? All right, let's get to this next um, well-known and rather confusing statement down here. So 25, he says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. 26. For the king knows about these things. See, it's Festus over here, the Roman governor, 
who said, you're crazy. And Paul shifts the focus from the governor back to King Agrippa. He said, the king knows about these things, these things being the prediction of the prophets that the Christ would, would suffer and be raised and do the like. He said, he knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. I think that's pretty fair to assume that Agrippa and Festus and all these others, they know just exactly what's been going on. That's part of the reason why they're having this discussion, right? Um, Daniel mentioned Acts 17 a minute ago at the end where he's in uh, Athens. But what about earlier in Acts 17 when they were in Thessalonica? What was the accusation made about Paul and his companions? They've turned the world upside down. These guys are problem causers. Then you fast forward to chapter 19 there in Ephesus. What happens? A riot in this city. Uh, and then here in Jerusalem, once, twice, again and again, the authorities have to swoop in and pluck Paul out of the jaws of death as he's getting just pummeled to, a, to, the, to death. So there's been all sorts of commotion, right? There's been numerous people who have been baptized and been brought into uh, this family. It's growing and it's growing and it's growing. They know. And so he says, this isn't some secret little underground cult. This isn't some little private group, some mystery cult, some secret group. This, is, this has been done publicly, not done in a corner. You know about it. In 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Are you convinced that the prophets said that Christ would do the things that we've talked about? He said, I know you believe. 